It is my pleasure now to introduce a friend and a colleague. Uh, she is a new addition, a relatively new addition to the Center for Church Health team. She offices right next to me, and she is so insightful. Uh, she was one of the first speakers I invited to speak and to open up this conference because uh, every time I hear her talk, I always get something new. And that doesn't always happen for people who grow up in church all the time. Uh, a lot of times you hear the same things over and over again, and you don't, I don't get that with Katie. Uh, Dr. Katie McCoy, she has a uh, PhD in systematic theology from Southwestern where she served on faculty for five years, and I know that you're going to be challenged by her. So would you welcome Dr. Katie McCoy. Great Scott, it's 2023. That classic sci-fi film, Back to the Future, where Doc Brown and Marty McFly, they go back in time to try to change the present and influence the future. And the basic idea is that what came before them has shaped and guided where they are today. Well, here we are talking about sharing the gospel 2,000 years ever since the first witnesses to the risen Lord. And while we don't have any flux capacitors or hoverboards or anything like that, we can still go back in time, as it were, to change the present and influence the future. You know, the first generations of the church, they were kind of a golden era. During the early church, there were thousands of people coming to Christ in one day, unprecedented miracles, courage in the face of barbaric persecution, unity across cultural, social, and ethnic divides. And in all of this, this minority religion in the Greco-Roman world birthed in a small region in Judea, spearheaded by a former fisherman and a former Pharisee, set the world on fire in a matter of centuries. So staggering was the spread of the Christian faith and the teachings of Jesus that an agnostic sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark set out to understand how in the world this was possible, how it seemed to defy every expectation and become the dominant social influence in the ancient world. And over the course of his study, this sociologist converted to Christ. Can you imagine he became a follower of Jesus by studying the earliest followers of Jesus? And even now, their lives and their witnesses speak, and they speak to us today. Oh, we're millennia past the nascent days of the church, but for all that has changed, not that much has changed. In fact, you and I bring the message of Jesus to a culture that bears some striking similarities to that of our spiritual ancestors. Beliefs and values that used to be held in common in our culture now are outdated or even oppressive. And what was on the fringes of society just a generation ago is now mainstream. The millennial generation, I'm one of those, we are now the largest segment of the population. And it just so happens uh, to be the least religious in fact, they're more than a little suspicious of religion in general, about half of them claiming you can be a very good moral person and you don't even need to believe in the existence of God. Generation Z, coming right behind us, is surprisingly spiritual. They are absorbing and cultivating a new moral and ethical system, but with no confidence in objective truth of any kind, 
no remedy for the human heart, their only hope of meaningful change is the redistribution of social power. We're seeing that today too. You and I are living in a post-Christian culture. Now that term post-Christian culture, you may have heard of it before, likely because we look around and we cannot deny that we are in one. But it typically means two things. First, the Christian faith is no longer a major social influence like it used to be just a generation or two ago. Who can deny that? Unlike previous generations, those with privileged places of influence or prestige, they want typically nothing to do with the Christian faith, nor do they look on the Christian teaching with favor. They might be a fan of Jesus. Everybody likes Jesus until he starts talking about he is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to be reconciled to God. They certainly don't want to follow him. And as a result, Christianity is considered irrelevant at best or bigoted at worst. Even more, the basic beliefs or tenets of the Christian faith are no longer part of our cultural psyche. I'm sure you've noticed this as well. Ideas like a personal creator, absolute right and wrong, the existence of heaven and hell. Several decades ago, most people would have agreed about the existence of these things. Maybe two decades ago, we might have said, we can't assume that people agree about the existence of these things. And today, we can probably assume that they do not agree about the existence of these things. This change of cultural preeminence is part of what we mean by a post-Christian culture. And unfortunately, that phrase cultural preeminence is what some Christians are mistakenly believing that we have to recover in order to restore our witness. And the early church ancestors are going to have a little something to say about that. Second, in a post-Christian culture, society rejects Christianity's primary claims, but hangs on to some of its values. And this is very subtle, but we are living in the effects of it today. Pastor John Mark Comer describes it as an attempt to move away from the Christian vision for life, but still retain its scaffolding, so to speak. For instance, Americans still value things like caring for the poor, pursuing justice for the vulnerable, kindness to strangers. Did you know that the Western cultural value of individual rights and human dignity for all, no matter your ethnicity, gender, or social class, that is borrowed from Christianity. The West didn't come up with that. Christian apostles did. Even secular scholars have acknowledged this that it comes from the teaching and the influence of Christianity on society. These are good things historically, but our society is now trying to hang on to that good and get rid of the God that it represents. They overwhelmingly reject the claim that Jesus is Lord, the need for reconciliation through him alone, and certainly the authority of the Bible over our lives. Pastor Mark Sayers describes it this way. They want the kingdom, but without the king. And the result is a society with selectively high moral standards. We value human dignity and freedom, but we also live in a world of cancel culture and public shame. We have no way to create the moral goodness within us that we see we need. How are you and I to communicate a message when it seems like we're speaking a different language? How can we use the methods and approaches in a culture that no longer exists? 
before we go back to our churches and communities and wring our hands over the state of the world around us, and before we go back to the methods and strategies of a previous time, let's go back even further, back all the way to the beginning, back to the future. There are three ways I believe that our post-Christian culture is like the early church. And I believe if we can really grasp this, the Lord could be preparing us to have the kind of impact that the early church had on their time as well. First, both the early church disciple and the post-Christian disciple, that's you and me, we are witnessing to a culture that rejects exclusive truth claims. They reject exclusive truth claims. Now, the gospel spread in the early church in the middle of a polytheistic society. There were many gods. And and generally speaking, they were very open to new ones. They were very uh, curious about some new god, some new deity. You think about Paul at Mars Hill. This is what he encountered. Oh, yes, tell us more about this Jesus that you're talking about. So they were open to new gods, they were receptive to them, but their tolerance would collide with exclusive claims to truth, like Jesus alone is Lord, Um, that uh, he alone is the way that we can be reconciled to God. And so when a polytheistic society collided with those exclusive truth claims, all of a sudden, they would not abide that type of uh, religion. The tolerance ran out. So here's this minority religion calling themselves the way, claiming to have the one true God and every other God is false. That is a claim of authority. Not their authority, but that Jesus had all authority and they are representing him. And for that, the early church found no tolerance. There was only conversion or opposition. Today, we are not living in the type of polytheistic society in the same way, but we are characterized by a world that worships individual gods. The dominant ideas of our age claim, like you know, objective truth does not exist. That's a basic belief of postmodernism, the culture that we're living in today. Another aspect of postmodernism, a little more subtle, but everywhere present, says that all religions are opinions and products of their culture. So no religion is more or less true than the other. And if you were to claim that one religion is more or less true than the other, you are making a claim to authority. That you have some type of special truth or special knowledge that other religions don't have. And as a result, you will hear things when you share the gospel like, well, that works for you. That is true for you. But to claim that something is universally true for everyone is considered arrogant or even unjust, or you're trying to make a power play. In fact, once you claim that your belief has authority, there is little room for for tolerance. Couple that with another idea that we have running in our culture today, and it is affecting how we share the gospel. It is the belief that your true self, your real self, holds the key to your happiness. And if you want to find that real you, you have to look to your feelings to shape and guide your actions. And then you should pursue this 
real you, this true, authentic you, at any cost. We hear it in phrases like follow your heart, look within, live your truth. Does it sound familiar? There's a term for it. It's called expressive individualism. I'm so sorry to hit you with all the philosophy stuff right out of the gate. I promise it gets easier from here. But like postmodernism, this view says that the only wrong response is to disagree with someone's choices or beliefs. But it even goes further. It says that your inner feelings have ultimate authority over who you really are. The self becomes the source of truth. And anything that gets in the way of that self-expression, like religious claims or the insistence that you need to be reconciled to God or that you are a sinner in need of a savior, well, that either has to be dismissed or, get ready for it, deconstructed. The result is a society in which proclaiming the truth of Christ and the call to personal conversion is a call to abandon a very real personal God, the self. And we find that there is little tolerance for it, only conversion or opposition. Second way that we are like the early church. The early church disciple and the post-Christian disciple are witnessing in a culture that holds to a false view of humanity. And anytime we're talking about a false view of humanity, we're also talking about a false view of what it means to be human and therefore what it means to be fulfilled and happy. What is the point of life? The God of the Bible has a relationship with humanity that is different from every other God. The opening words of scripture describe a creator that is separate from his creation, but very intimately involved in it. In fact, he personally makes everything, the material world and the immaterial world, and he calls it good. Everything he makes has order, design, and purpose, and that includes physical humanity. Now, to the Greco-Roman world where Christianity began, that was insane. That was foolish. See, the Greco-Roman world thought that the material life, everything we see physically, is just a necessary evil. The dominant idea was something called mind-body dualism. Spiritual world is good. Material world is bad. And we even see the apostles responding to some of these ideas when they talk about uh, a cult or a, uh, a religious belief called Gnosticism. Perhaps you're familiar with Gnosticism. Paul was addressing this very idea. It was a very common and popular belief system at the time, and it held that salvation was knowledge, but not just knowledge from uh, of, uh, salvation from sin or being having knowledge of God. No, this was knowledge that had you escape the physical world, knowledge that had you uh, able to leave the corruption of the physical world and come to some higher spiritual plane where the real good is. In other words, again, spiritual good, material bad. And they were looking for this deep spiritual experience in their inner selves, and that would give them true salvation, true fulfillment, true escape, from the corruption of the material world. In other words, the body was something to leave behind. 
and the physical world was evil. The goal of your soul, the goal of humanity, was to have your true self, your inner self, be free of your body. And into this cultural environment, Christianity bursts on the scene with very countercultural claims, like God created the physical world and it is good. Not only that, but human beings are his image bearers. And that's not just our spiritual selves, that's all of us. God uh, became a human being. He willingly involved himself in the physical world. And not only that, but the God-man, Jesus, after he physically died for our sins, was physically resurrected. He came back to his body. So an entire religion where your God comes down to creation physically, conquers death physically, raises, is raised to life physically, and is going to physically come back, that would have been absurd to the Greeks. This clashed with their view of humanity. Well, today, not much has changed. The terms and the technology are very different, but the deception about human nature, what it means to be human and what it means to be fulfilled is the same. The human body in our culture today is considered irrelevant to your true self, your human identity. Your material self is considered just a collection of cells and organs that evolved and have nothing to do with who you really truly are. In fact, they have nothing to do with whether you are a man or a woman. Only your immaterial self, your feelings, your emotions is what matters to tell you who you really are. And so, as a result, we have an entire world in search for inner peace and congruence or wholeness. And in an effort to heal soul-deep wounds, we have an entire generation that is altering their bodies, regarding their bodies as insignificant, and trying to make their bodies fit an inner sense of who they really are. And tragically, there are precious people who need spiritual help, mental care, and instead they're being ushered into treatments and procedures that cause irreversible harm. Where does it come from? It comes from ideas about human nature, humanity, what it means to be human. This is happening, by the way, in your churches and communities. If you have people under 25 on social media, it's there. This is not a fleeting trend. It is an overflow of beliefs about what it means to be human, how we form our identity, and how we fix the problems of our hearts. It is an idea, a philosophy, and a darkness that has taken us captive. And just like Romans 1 says, it denies the evidence of God in creation by suppressing the truth. Just last week, I read about a man in Canada who underwent a gender realignment surgery so he could live as a woman. And he regrets the procedures because of the damage that is done. He thought this was gonna solve his inner conflict. He thought this was going to make him whole. But now, not only has it failed to deliver on its promise, but he is now applying for medically assisted suicide because he's tried everything and he still can't find peace. It didn't work, and now the only relief left for him is just to die. We are surrounded by people. They may never make a headline, 
but they are just as hopeless. And what are they looking for? Peace in pain, hunger for wholeness. They are searching for salvation, and they have been deceived by an age-old lie that they, if they can just escape their physical selves, they'll find deliverance. Our culture's distrust of the body might seem new, but it's really just a repackaged version of an ancient lie, one that Christians have been responding to since the earliest days of our faith. This is why I am convinced that evangelism today must include equipping the people in our care to engage ideas and critical thought. Beliefs about human nature have deep roots. And just like you would clear away weeds in a garden that block out water and air and sunshine, we have to patiently pull up weeds of ideas that are choking out the truth. Gone are the days when we can afford not to be students of our culture and the beliefs that are shaping it. This is also why, as apologist Nancy Piercy says, we have to begin talking about the message of Jesus where the Bible does, creation. Instead of starting with the fall, that all humans are sinful and under judgment, we start with why that's even a problem. Because God created humanity in his image with dignity and value and worth. We tell people God made you in love. You are in the image of the one true creator God and that's why the sin that separates you is such a tragedy. And you will never find the peace and wholeness apart from being restored to a right relationship with him, body and soul. Next way, both early church disciple and the post-Christian disciple, we are witnessing in a culture that disconnects sexual morality from any kind of spiritual meaning. God calls his people to be separate or set apart or holy from the surrounding world. And the Christian sexual ethic is one of the most significant ways that the early disciples stood out. And it is for us as well. In his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer identifies three reasons for why this is. First, he says sexuality is the primary test of our generation's fidelity to the way of Jesus or to the world's ideas and ideologies. In other words, it's a central battleground for our affections, for our commitments, for our identities. Second, Comer explains that sexuality was one of the most common New Testament examples of non-Christian behavior. In fact, twisting doctrine to justify sexual sin was a mark of false teaching. Just go look at the New Testament passages about false teachers and you'll, you'll find the connection. The Apostle Paul said women who were carried away by various lusts and and uh, those, they are those who fail to acknowledge the truth. That's 2 Timothy 3. Peter cautions uh, against false prophets who infect the church with heresies and follow their sensuality. That's 2 Peter 2. Jude warns of individuals who have crept into the fellowship of believers and turned liberty in Christ into license, thus denying Jesus as Lord and Master. There is a connection. Amending or adapting what the Bible says about sexuality in order to accommodate sexual license indicated or was symptomatic of a false gospel. 
And we find no shortage of those so-called teachers today. Please note, these warnings to the church do not refer to instances of sexual sin for which we find God's grace, but rather the justification of sexual sin in the name of God's grace. Totally different. Third on Comer's list, he says sexuality has always been an arena where followers of Jesus stand in sharp contrast to the world from the Acropolis of Athens to the sidewalks of Brooklyn. The Christian sexual ethic runs counter to every other worldview's claims about human dignity and sexuality. No other religion both gives significance to human sexuality without worshiping human sexuality. Think about that. Now, ancient Rome, despite being very religious, religion among the citizens of ancient Rome did not infect or did not affect or inform morality. In other words, what one did with one's sexuality was completely disconnected from or irrelevant to one's character or standing in society. One church historian said it this way, there was nothing in which the Romans did not indulge or which they thought a disgrace. What first century Rome lacked in technology, they made up for in debauchery. Male and female prostitution, it was inconsequential. It was really just kind of part of life. Pederasty, the sexual relationship between an adult man and a boy between about 12 and 16 years old, that was also socially accepted and commonly practiced. Nobody really bat an eye over it. Men could assault male and female slaves with no legal recourse, and it essentially created a uh, culturally accepted form of sexual slavery. Marriage, necessary socially to have children and heirs, but not really desired. There was no limit to the sexual relationships a man could have with prostitutes or married women. And as long as he wasn't unfaithful with another man's wife, there were no constraints. Roman wives were expected to be faithful uh, because their husbands had to be certain that the offspring was his, but they found a way around this. They registered as city prostitutes so that they could get out of having to be faithful to their marriage vows. And against this cultural background came the teachings of the apostles, like prohibiting all sexual activity outside marriage between a man and a woman. And that Christ-like love of husbands is depicting the relationship between Christ and the church. In other words, sexuality had a deeper spiritual meaning. The demand for fidelity in marriage was mutual between husband and wife. That was completely foreign to the world in which the church was born. Homosexual practice was considered uh, not only suppressing the truth of God revealed in creation, but a distortion of God's design. Celibacy was even considered a blessed, desirable state in serving the Lord. Nancy Piercy said it this way, what Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies they give to the surrounding world. It still makes us unusual. It still makes us set apart. Today, we are fast approaching the days of Rome. Our culture views sex as an exclusively biological thing, divorced from any greater meaning. In fact, what you do with your sexuality is considered entirely separate from whether or not you are a moral person. 
everything then becomes permissible. What was on the fringes just a generation ago is now mainstream. Now, of course, we have the legalization of same-sex marriage. We have the prevalence of pornography and its destructive effects, especially to women. But we also have things like polyamory becoming mainstream among churchgoers, by the way. And there is an alarming increase in the outspoken defense of pedophilia. In fact, that term is too taboo now. It's too judgmental. So instead, they prefer the phrase minor attracted persons. So you change the words, change the perception, right? They believe they're being treated unfairly in society and they are demanding equality. And as shocked and appalled as we should be, we should remember this. This might be foreign to us, but it is old, conquered ground in the life and witness of the church. As early as the first century, there was a manual for how to do church and the Christian life that circulated around these early churches. And it told believers first, not only to abstain from all sexual immorality, but it specifically commanded them not to corrupt boys. In other words, a reference to pederasty. This is nothing new. This is nothing that the people of God have not faced before and called out in their society and contrasted from the world around them. The Christian sexual ethics stood out against the moral rot of the Greco-Roman world. And this contrast was essential to the power of their proclamation of the gospel and the fulfillment of the mission. The rise of Christianity led to the outlawing of forced prostitution. This is so incredible. So forced prostitution was a deeply ingrained practice in the ancient world. And prior to Christianity's influence, it was at the center of the culture. It was so common that it was invisible to everyone except God's people. One researcher found that when a society recognized forced prostitution as morally evil and exploiting of the vulnerable, it was only because that society had been revolutionized by the, goal, uh, by the gospel. It was exclusive to the influence of Christianity. Here's the amazing thing. They didn't have political leverage. They eventually changed laws, but that was all as a result of them speaking for those who had no voice and proclaiming Christ. The overflowing of sexual slavery defending the most vulnerable and forgotten, the dismantling of institutions of exploitation. It came from the people of God, empowered by the spirit of God, who carry within them the kingdom of God to fulfill the mission of God. And this light in the darkness is our birthright. So how did they do it? With no power, no preeminence, no national structure. I mean, they certainly will not, were not welcomed among Roman palaces and prefects. And yet they turned the world upside down. How did they do it? How do we do it? Well, I think we can narrow it down. At the risk of narrowing down or reducing a supernatural move of the spirit to just a couple of points, I think we see two patterns. They're very simple, but they run deep. First, they were his faithful followers. They proclaimed Christ and followed him in every, every area of their lives. So they proclaimed the gospel. They lived 
holy lives. They proclaimed Christ and him crucified. They devoted themselves to prayer and the well-being of one another. They were united in a single-minded mission of fulfilling Jesus's great commission. Now they faced genuine threats, false gospels, political factions, challenges to tradition, sexual scandal, ethnic and cultural tension between Jew and Gentile, not to mention widespread persecution, but they faced them and they overcame them with even less than we have now. We might say it this way, they kept the main things, the main things for the sake of their collective witness. Oh, there were plenty of theological issues to hammer out, the deity and humanity of Christ being that primary one in the first few centuries. And we stand on the shoulders of those who articulated those beliefs. But I have yet to learn of the early church being sidetracked by the kind of hair-splitting, gnat-straining, navel-gazing, finger-pointing, brow-beating over secondary doctrines that characterize so much of our discourse today. In his book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, which I highly recommend to you, Trevin Wax calls us back to the beauty of those main things of our faith. He says the church faces her biggest challenge, not when new errors start to win, but when old truths no longer wow. Short-lived will be the movement more passionate about hunting heretics than making converts. Second, they were his ambassadors. The Christian faith is pro-humanity. This led to the Christians uh, being uh, willing to risk their very own lives to care for society's most down and out, their most vulnerable. In fact, part of their witness was that they would care for pagans who had been kicked out of their own homes during a plague. This is before vaccines, antibiotics, even knowledge of germs, and they would nurse back these pagans to health. Christianity also gave women a place of significant contribution in the church despite their inferior social status and political exclusion. Women flooded to the Christian faith, so much so that Christianity was mocked as a woman's religion. One estimate claims that women made up about a third of the population in the Greco-Roman world, but two-thirds of the population in the church. Throughout church history, when followers of Christ encounter a culture, they defended the image of God, they defended the value of God's image bearers and protected society's most vulnerable. The early church even combated infanticide, child abandonment, and abortion. Following the birth of unwanted children, typically girls, fathers would just leave them outside, uh, abandoned to the elements or uh, animals. Abortion. Uh, was a means to conceal and perpetuate immorality. Roman men would force women to undergo horrific abortion procedures, many of which threatened their own lives. The early church condemned these as murder, but didn't stop there. St. Basil of Caesarea, uh, when he discovered that there was a, a, a guild, this business that was essentially profiting off of abortion, he mobilized his congregation to care for what we would call abortion-vulnerable women. In other words, he condemned abortion and worked to eliminate the demand. Imagine that. Advocating for the unborn and their mothers is in our spiritual DNA. 
as is abolition, by the way. The end of slavery in medieval Europe is attributed exclusively to the equal treatment that the church gave to both slave and free. In other words, as Christianity spread, it effectively created universal abolition. The laws followed the influence of God's people in society. Time prevents me from an exhaustive list, but we find this pattern all throughout history. St. Patrick, who brought Christianity to Ireland, put an end to the demonic practice of child sacrifice. Annie Armstrong rescued children from temple prostitution. Lottie Moon opposed the torturous practice of foot binding. Today, Christians are among the most active in combating human trafficking, illiteracy, disease, poverty, hunger, and of course, abor abortion. Wherever you find the people of excuse me, wherever you find the image of God being misused or degraded, you will find the people of God opposing injustice and upholding their dignity. The great Carl F.H. Henry wrote a little book called A Plea for Evangelical Demonstration. He said that the Christian is morally bound to challenge everything that tramples upon a human being's dignity as a bearer of the divine image, whether that is political economic, social, or legal. Social critique, Henry said, is an authentic part of evangelical mission. We are his ambassadors. We are his servants. When we right earthly wrongs, it isn't, or at least shouldn't be, for our own pursuit of power or social preeminence, but rather to restrain the effects of depravity in our sinful world as part of our witness. We talked about a lot of overarching ideas and philosophies, but before we go, there's one more way that we are like our early church ancestors, and it is very personal. You and I are living in an age of unprecedented isolation. People are simultaneously connected at every moment through technology, but their souls are starved for connection to humanity. Not infrequently now do we read about the loneliness epidemic, changes in family structure, the average age of first marriage increasing, and of course, the effects of the pandemic. We hear about mental health issues that have skyrocketed in recent years, with many young adults in particular simply unable to cope with life's stresses and demands. And running beneath all of this is this undercurrent of our desire to live a meaningful and significant life, to belong, to be whole, but have no idea how to achieve that. The early church guides us in this too. See, they infused the ancient world with a completely new foundation for social relationships. People came to Christ in part because of new converts, not just finding a savior, that they could believe in, but a community that they could belong to. Stark, that sociologist, again, observed that most new religious movements fail because they become insulated, closed networks. But growth happens over social connection, specifically direct and intimate interpersonal attachments. And these attachments drew in outsiders to become part of their common identity, their common mission, their common experiences. A few weeks ago, I overheard two veterans. They were talking about their time in the military. They had never met, which is what made this whole exchange so fascinating 
for me to overhear. It's like they were speaking a language that they had in common. They talked about places where they'd served. They described where they, they were during 9-11 and they relived everything that they did. These two people, complete strangers, and yet they had common experiences that seemed to create this instant bond. One of them asked, do you miss active duty? And the other described that while she was glad to be done with some of the responsibilities, she did miss the sense of purpose, how they were part of a common mission, and how she said, it didn't even matter if you were washing the dishes, you were part of something bigger and it mattered. And then she looked over at me and said, you know, there's a reason why businesses are studying and implementing these principles from the military. And I thought, well, it just so happens, I know a place where you can do all that and you don't even have to do the push-ups. <laughs> People are searching for a sense of belonging, of purpose, for identity anchored in the union with a living God, not an empty religion and not aimless self for a common experience that is both personal to them but connects them with something bigger than just themselves, and for a mission that both claims and redeems every area of their lives for a significant purpose. Truly, what is new to us is already conquered territory for Christ's church. So the next time you look around and see the darkness, look back at our ancestors in the faith. Remember what they teach us. It can change our present and it can influence our future. And then look up because we have the same father that they did. We serve the same risen Lord and we are indwelt by the same powerful Holy Spirit and he can do it again. Thank you.